0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me your host Jeremy Walker. Each week we work through Spurgeon's sermons and this week we're in sermons 619 to 625 which means next week 626 to 632. Our featured sermon this week, the one that we concentrate on as a representative example of not just a great preacher but preaching that exalts Jesus Christ is number 620 and the title of this one is A Warning Against Hardness of Heart. It's Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. Now the sermon is uh, preached on the 19th of March in 1865 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The text Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I don't know if there's a particular case uh, in the church or cases in the church, pastoral sensitivity, perhaps fear for his own soul would be a part of this, perhaps some uh, wider sense of what's taking place in the Christian church. But Spurgeon begins by reminding us that the things which are written in the Old Testament for us are recorded for our benefit, that we are meant to understand that there are certain parallels, not a complete continuity, but neither a complete discontinuity. And so that the example of the Old Testament people of Israel going through the wilderness and wanting to go back to Egypt, uh, that the same kinds of stiff neckedness. Obstinacy, rebellion, perverseness and hardness of heart that were in them can be too the great sins of the Christian church. Unbelief the root, with obstinacy the fruit. And so, brothers and sisters, if we know our own hearts, says the preacher, and you notice again how he's putting himself in the same category, we must confess that unbelief is a sin which does very easily beset us, and that our obstinacy may well provoke the Lord to anger. He wants us to appreciate that there's a real necessity to warn God's people, although they have received the new nature and are partakers of the adoption – Against being hardened in heart through the deceitfulness of sin, and that there is a machinery, there is a means provided by which the saints may be preserved from this great evil. Exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, right at the outset, there's a, a note of uh, pastoral Christian realism. There are some people who resent or object to the warnings that are necessary for God's people, as if they don't need them, uh, shouldn't require them, uh, that the preacher's being uh, hard or unreasonable or negative in delivering them. There's uh, an opposite problem perhaps too, uh, a denial of or a a neglect of the the reality, uh, a failure to reckon with the fullness of, of salvation a, a putting away of the new nature, uh, a sense or a tendency to think that uh, it's it's not really that substantial and and doesn't really secure very much. Spurgeon, in in a scriptural balance, is driving the right line. That we do have, if Christians, the new nature. We are partakers of the adoption. We have this life that is in Christ, and yet. Being in the midst of this present evil age, there is a tendency in us to be hardened in heart through the deceitfulness of sin. We have an enemy and sin deceives us and therefore these warnings are necessary. They're profitable for our souls. And so, says Spurgeon, we're going to talk in that way together First, dwelling for a season upon the hardening effect of sin upon men, whether saints or sinners. Then we shall show the peculiar power by which sin hardens, that is, its deceitfulness. Then the remedy which we are to use with others, exhort one another daily. And then uh, an exhortation for ourselves if we find ourselves diseased with this same hardness of heart, if we're growing insensible in our spirits as some of us may most justly concern be concerned. First then, dear friends, the hardening character of sin. And Spurgeon says this is simply a matter of experience. The first sin which came into the world hardened man's heart in a most terrific manner, uh, an extreme way, so that he dared to excuse himself and even to charge God as being indirectly the author of his sin by giving him the woman. As soon as Adam falls from his happy condition, his his antagonism toward God, his insensitivity of spirit is manifest. Man's heart naturally is firm as a stone now that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Spurgeon wants us to understand that sin in itself has a hardening character. And he talks about this in a variety of ways, makes a number of, of relevant comments or remarks. First of all, living among sinners has a hardening tendency upon men. You cannot walk about in this great Lazar house, this, this leper house, this place of pestilence without receiving some contagion. It says you need to be really careful how you expose yourself to or handle sin. Can I even read a description of another man's sin without getting my heart hardened? I query if reading the daily reports of crime in the police news is not a very fertile cause of sin. Now this is perhaps very significant for some of us, those lurid stories about uh, real crimes. Great crimes usually produce their like in congenial minds and even in the purest hearts their recital cannot but have an injurious effect. The tree of knowledge of good and evil bears dangerous fruit. It were well if we restrained our curiosity and left foul deeds alone, unknown, unread by us. Perhaps we just need to think about whether or not we've got an unhealthy interest in in the details of particular criminality, uh, the, the ugliness of those things, forgetting that that has a hardening tendency upon us. I think perhaps too that exposure to these things in various media, uh, are we conscious of how that dulls our sensitivity to sin? That the constant bombardment of iniquity is, is actually toughening up our souls and not in a good way. Then the sins of God's people are peculiarly operative in this manner. Spurgeon's point is not just that sin generally has a hardening tendency, but if you see someone who professes to be a believer, if you see someone who is living inconsistently as a Christian committing some particular sin, that has an even more potent effect upon us. Association with inconsistent Christians has been the downfall of many young believers the young man or woman, perhaps, who goes to university, uh, goes along to the Christian Union and, and finds there uh, a number of people who may be professed to, to be following Jesus Christ, and yet that first night, some of them are getting drunk, uh, some of them are hooking up with one another, uh, some of them are smoking weed, whatever it may be, some of them are, are cheating in their uh, in, in their exams or or in their coursework. Now, if they're saying, but we're Christians then don't you see how that undermines the the sensitivity of spirit of another believer to the sins which they seem so easily to commit? Interesting point that Spurgeon makes even beyond that, that even preaching against sin may have an injurious effect upon the preacher. I frankly confess, my brothers, that there is a tendency with those of us who have to speak upon these themes to treat them professionally rather than to make application of them to ourselves. And thus we lose our dread of evil in some degree, just as young doctors soon lose their tender nervousness in the dissecting room. I think pastors often feel that in, in some sense, not, not for salvation, not for to mediate, but there's a sense in which we can become sin bearers as we accumulate some of the, the experience and the history of people who deal with us and with whom we have to deal, who we're counselling and assisting, people who've either done things or had things done to them. And even with a measure of discretion uh, in the... The hearing of these things is a building up of the weight of of the iniquity that there is in the world upon our souls. Spurgeon says that that can harden us. We're compelled in our office, in our work, to see 10,000 things which at first are heartbreakers to us. In our young ministry, when we meet with hypocrisy and inconsistency, we're ready to lie down and die. But the tendency in after years is to take these terrible evils as a matter of course. Worldliness, covetousness and carnality shock us most at the outset of our work. Is not this a sad sign that even God's ministers may feel the hardening effect of sin? I think of my own experience. The first, the first man that I'd really had much to do with who uh, apostatized, who, who, who fell into uh, gross sin And I remember hearing the news and simply breaking down in tears and weeping for I don't know how long. What do I hear now when I hear yet another man, when I've run out of fingers and toes for people with whom I've had a particular relationship or a measure of connection? Do I now go, there's another one? I don't think I'm at that stage, but but even that kind of sin can become normal to us. It's, it's just another example of just another sin. Spurgeon says, "...be aware of this, be aware of the tendency. You must understand that the hardening of a tender conscience is a gradual process, something like the covering of a pond with ice on a frosty night." You know, there may be sins that you you read about or or see portrayed, and the first time you see them or, or hear them or whatever it may be, maybe you, you turn away in disgust or you uh, you 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 turn off the television or you 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 change the channel or uh, you 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 you, you, know, you you say enough's enough, but perhaps you go back and and by degrees you become inured to it, and so your heart freezes over gradually. Apostates and great backsliders do not reach their worst at one bound, says the preacher. The descent to hell is sometimes a precipice, but far oftener a smooth and gentle slope. So what's the sequence? What sorts of things happen? Well, the man's first carefulness and tenderness departs. The fear of sinning, the hatred of sin... The, the the desire to please God and the distress of displeasing him. The subject of excessive tenderness. Some people called it morbid sensibility, he says. But I shuddered and shivered at the very thought of sin, which then appeared exceedingly sinful. Now, sin doesn't get any better. There's no it, it doesn't improve with acquaintance. Our problem is that we don't feel sin as once we did. We get accustomed to it in others and in ourselves. It may not seem a great evil, says Spurgeon, to have less abhorrence of evil, but this truly is the egg from which the worst mischief may come. So often we begin to reason with ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves and we we therefore really encourage the hardening of the heart. The next distressing sign of growing hardness is increasing neglect or laxity, looseness, carelessness with regard to private devotion without any corresponding shock of the spiritual sensibilities on account of it. In other words, we we draw off from God and it doesn't really bother us. We're not troubled by it. We're not distressed by it. Perhaps we, we barely even notice it. Praying becomes shorter, shorter, if not irregular altogether. Reading the word is given up for other things. Um, we, we find other demands that, that prevent us seeking after the Lord God. And, and it's not bothering us. We, we don't feel the effect of it. And then, hidings of the Saviour's face do not cause that acute and poignant sorrow which they produced in former times. We used to grieve if we didn't enjoy the presence of God, if we lost a sense of his communion. But now that's all right to us. I've sometimes walked in darkness, says Spurgeon, and have seen no light. And I confess with deep shame and profound sorrow that I have occasionally been half indifferent whether Jesus shone forth or no. It's not just that he's not there. In the same degree, the same closeness. It's that we're not caring that he is not there. Spurgeon says, Do you understand that that's a sign that your heart is becoming cool? Still further, sin no longer causes such grief as it once did. And here he's picking up this same point and pushing it forward. Have we reached the point when we can talk of sin lightly, make excuses for it, make jokes about it, when we can see it in others without sorrow and in ourselves without the greatest shame? The telling yourself, well, everybody speaks like that. Or, well, that's just the way the world is. Or, well, we need to get used to it if we're going to live in this in the real world. Spurgeon says, have we begun to feel that sin is no great thing? in our own lives, let alone in the lives of others. talks about someone who uh, on one occasion was found drunk, and when much depressed on account of his folly, the devil said to him, Do it again, do it again, for the grief you feel about it now you will never feel any more if you commit the sin again. And that the person who told that anecdote says that when the man yielded to the temptation, he never again felt regret for his drunkenness and lived and died a confirmed sot, though formerly he'd been well known as a Christian man. Now, the devil will go on using that. He'll say, you might as well do it again, or this is the way to make it feel better. It's a sinful pleasure, but the pleasure will take away the sense of sin. And so, sin causing less grief is indulged in more freely. First time you fall down, second time you lie down. The first time you're overtaken, the second time you're running after sin. First time you're a victim, second time an accomplice. First time a mistake, the second time a desire. First you sipped, now you drink by the bucketful. First the spark, now a whole breastful of burning coals. Spurgeon says, beware and don't mock the phrase when it's used properly. Beware the slippery slope. Now I know that's a careless phrase sometimes, as if you know anything is the beginning of a great decline. But Spurgeon's point would be: any sin is often the beginning of a great decline, unless God in His mercy holds us back. And then there's an other stage. This is this is real. Uh, pastoral understanding, spiritual insight. He's unpacking the way that this decline takes place. He's showing us what can happen and maybe is happening in our souls. The man comes to dislike rebukes. He has sinned so long, and yet he's been held in such respect in the Christian church that if you give half a hint about his sin, he looks at you with a sharp look as if you were insulting him. He is not to be talked to or spoken with. He's been taken for a flaming professor, a bright man with a bright testimony for so many years that he's not to be suspected now. And, and some of us have had to deal with, with older saints who've been who've objected to any suggestion that there's some kind of sin that they've perhaps been carrying with them or is now beginning to manifest itself. You may rebuke the sins of the congregation in that case, and such a man will be gratified if you do not make too particular an application. You may declaim against his sin in public. It doesn't come too close to him. But woe to the friend daring enough to give a private admonition the looking in the eye and the speaking the truth in love. The more a man loves his sin and needs rebuke, the more heartily will he hate the person who with the best of motives lays it at his door if he's reached this point. Mark this word, says Spurgeon, listen carefully. If this hardening work goes on, the day at last comes to such a man that the word of God loses all effect upon him, whether he reads it or hears it, it ceases to be an accusing voice any longer. Rather, he finds a song of lullaby in it, and rocked in the cradle of his sin, he sleeps on to his own eternal ruin. Is that possible for a child of God? Spurgeon says, actually, I think that's the mark of hypocrisy men who say they're Christians but but are not. There comes a point where even the word of God has no real impact upon our hearts. It doesn't penetrate. It it, it just bounces off us. It's, It's as much as a song that lulls us to sleep. It's a fearful prospect. And Spurgeon is, for the benefit of our souls, as a warning to our hearts, tracing that downward decline. Now, what is it about sin which has this effect? What is it in sin that makes this uh, such a likely course? Spurgeon says it's the deceitfulness of sin. The heart is deceitful and sin is deceitful. And so when deceitful sin speaks to your deceitful heart, you have a problem sin will say things like this. You see, no hurt has come of this. It hasn't really done any damage, hasn't made any real difference to you. You can, I don't know, you can you can be angry at home. You could, I, I suppose, even beat a husband or a wife. and And then, you know, you can still come and fill your place in the service of the church. You can You can watch pornography and it didn't really have a a great impact upon the way that you prayed at the prayer meeting. You can neglect your Bible and you can still preach with a measure of competence on the Lord's Day. Don't forget, says Spurgeon, that the impacts are not always seen immediately and not always in this world. And then sin will whisper, well, this would be sin in other people, but it's not sin in you you say that you're different, you're a special case, you're allowed to be angry, you're allowed to indulge, you've worked hard enough, it's time to give yourself a little reward. And then this is a a dangerous thing for others to do, but in your case, says Sin, you've got so much prudence, so much experience, you can stop when you reach a certain point. You don't need to go so far as others do. You're a, you're a clever enough person, you're a thoughtful enough person, you're a godly enough person, you're a wise enough person that if you get too close, you'll be able to, to pull back before it's too bad. You'll be able to go to the verge of the precipice and then look down. And, says Spurgeon, there are some then, through the deceitfulness of sin, are always trying how near they can go to the edge so as not to fall over, how near they can sail to the rock without dashing themselves to pieces upon it, how much sin they can indulge in and yet remain respected church members. Shame on us that any of us should be guilty of such tampering with that accursed thing which slew the Lord of glory. Again, says Spurgeon, sin will sometimes have the impudence to say that I'm very easy to repent of. If you've once plunged into the mire, you can at any time see the evil of it, and you have only to repent, and straightway there is forgiveness. The strongest motives for holiness, sin will turn into an argument for rebellion against God. The fact that there is forgiveness with him shouldn't cause us to indulge in sin, but should mean that we flee from sin. Now Spurgeon's pressing on, and so must we, the remedy which is provided in the text for us to use with others. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, what we do, when we do it, and when we begin it. Doubtless many professors would be saved from gross sins if mutual exhortation were more commonly practiced in the churches of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now who should do this, says Spurgeon? Primarily it's a duty of the pastor and the church officers. We are set in the church to see after the good of the people and it is our business both in public and in private as far as we have opportunity to exhort daily and especially where we see any coldness creeping over men where there begins to be a decline in the ways of God it is our duty to be most earnest in exhortation. Brothers, sisters, welcome the loving care of your pastors and the deacons. As appropriate, welcome the loving care of the under shepherds of the sheep. Open your hearts to them, open your your minds to them, give them a standing invitation to speak truth lovingly to you. If they are gentle, faithful, godly men, they will not abuse that privilege, but it will do your soul good. Spurgeon says then that this is a primary duty for those who preach and teach. And and we need to be careful that we don't abuse that if we are preachers and teachers, that we don't become men who, who are always uh, suspicious and on the attack. But we also need to be careful that we do not resent it and resist it if we are uh, under that kind of care. When the time comes, when that's needful, that we receive it readily. But, says Spurgeon, it's everyone. Parents especially with their children. The mothers in Israel, if you're looking after the, the young sisters in the church, the Sunday school teachers, particularly with regard to your own classes, the elders, the the older believers here, not the uh, the, the pastors and teachers so much, but those who are older in the faith, the grey heads with years of experience which ought to have led, not invariably, but ought to have led to wisdom and knowledge that you should be dispensing to the young. All of you, without exception, says Spurgeon, whether rich or poor, see to each other's souls. Don't say, am I my brother's keeper? But seek your brother's good for edification. I do hope, he says, there will be a larger degree of sociality, not quite sure where he got that word from. I think he means uh, interaction among the members of this church than ever, although hitherto I have had no cause of complaint. Some churches never can practice mutual exhortation because the members don't know each other. The members of lumps of ice floating about, huge ice blocks without connection with one another. It ought not to be so. The very fact of church membership, drinking of the same cup, eating of the same bread, it seems to me, entitles every man to admonish and to be admonished, nay makes it the imperative duty of every such person to see that he cares for the soul of his fellow, of his brother. Now again, ask yourself, do I invest in, pursue and welcome the kinds of relationships and interactions that would allow for this mutual care? Spurgeon warns the church, We regard distinctions among men in civil life, yet in spiritual things we so care for each other's good and so desire the edification of the entire body of Christ that we watch over one another carefully and prayerfully and exhort one another daily. In other words, yes, we recognize that there are different degrees of uh, of experience or Uh, age or, or, or rank. We don't deny that that is the case, but we don't allow those to betray us into a kind of spiritual pride on the one hand or a spiritual fearfulness on the other. If you exhort an older man, exhort him as a father, says Spurgeon, and don't rebuke him the way that you might rebuke someone who is younger. You need to take account of those distinctions without allowing them to make you unfaithful. How then can our church, and I think we could all ask this, how could our church be kept right, instrumentally, except by much watchfulness? We do not wish to be dishonoured. We do not desire by great falls, to grieve the name of Christ. So then let us watch over one another. It is so pleasant and so blessed to restore a brother from the error of his ways that I can offer you no greater reward than these two, to screen the name of Christ from shame and to have the pleasure of saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. But, says Spurgeon, if that's how you would serve someone else, what if you find your own soul in need of that kind of dealing? Or if you recognise in yourself a measure of decline, he says. Some of us are in such a position that we're not very likely to be exhorted. We're keepers of the vineyard and have none who would take upon themselves to admonish us. One of the the blessings of uh, co-laboring in pastoral ministry or cultivating good friendships with other pastors in other congregations is that this then is not a, a path of isolation. Spurgeon says. If no one else is doing it, our enemies will very ably supply the lack for they often tell us very profitable but very unpleasant truths which do us a deal of good and they are never restrained by any fear of hurting our feelings. We have great reason to thank God for some men's enmity. It was the only way in which they could serve us. And some of us would add a pained amen to that statement that sometimes our enemies have told us things that our friends wouldn't either because they they love us too much to see it or they love us in the wrong way, perhaps too much to tell us. Uh, maybe, Maybe when someone says something cruel, vicious and unkind to you, as you deal with that, as you work through that, humbly and honestly you ask, is there any truth in here that I need to take? Well, says Spurgeon, What if there is any insensibility? What if there's any lack of feeling? Oh, for heartbreaking. To have a heart broken thoroughly would be a blessing. To be driven even to despair might be an enviable thing rather than not to feel at all. So he says, the remedies, labour to feel what an evil thing this is, understand How horrible, little love to your own dying Saviour, little joy in our precious Jesus, little fellowship with our spiritual and well-beloved husband, our Lord, our covenant head is. And so with shame of face, with grief over sin, holding a true Lent in your souls, go back at once to the cross. If your experience should seem to you to have been a delusion, your faith to have been presumption, Christ is a Saviour still. If you reach the point where you even ask yourself, was I ever converted, where else would you go but to Jesus Christ? There always has been life in him. There was life when first you looked and there is life still. So no matter how hard, how insensible, that's unfeeling, how dead we may have become, let us go again in all the rags and poverty and defilement of our natural condition, throw ourselves flat on our faces before his mighty cross. "'With all my sin and with all my hardness of heart, "'let the believer say, I do believe that Jesus died for me. "'Let him clasp that cross. "'Let him look into those languid eyes. "'Let him bathe in that fountain filled with blood. "'This will bring back to him his first love. "'This will restore the ancient holiness of his faith "'and the former tenderness of his soul.'" So then, Spurgeon, speaking to God's people, And speaking finally to those who never were converted, uh, who who may well never have been converted, there is hope, for there is life. Hope because of promise. Hope because on the cross hung the Saviour. Hope for me, for you, for both of us, if we go humbly to the mercy seat and take Christ to be our all in all. God, help us to do it for Jesus' name's sake. There is the warning, and out of the warning urging urging that we may go back to Christ Jesus and go to him if we've never gone to him before i trust that as we ponder those things whether we have a duty of uh, exhorting others talking to others uh, exhorting them and admonishing them maybe we need to begin today maybe we need to go and deal with our own souls understand the the evil of this decline and get back at once to the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether you need something for yourself, or whether there's a needful service that you need to render to your brothers and sisters, may God help us to do it lovingly, earnestly, urgently, warmly and effectively, to the praise of his glorious grace. And I trust you'll join me then next week when, if God spares us, We'll look at Sermon 631 on the believer sinking in the mire. And if this last sermon has has brought you low, as well it might for many of us, then hopefully next week's will help to recognise even such a condition as this and be God's means of lifting us up once again. Until then, may God bless us and keep us and give us sensitive souls.